Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. So we're going to finish up this series uh, this morning we've been in called Church and State. And as we've talked about, we are looking at these two topics that you are told to stay away from in conversation. So I know that Thanksgiving is coming up, so these are the two things that you probably don't want to talk about around the table, unless you want a food fight, uh, possibly. Uh, We're talking about faith and politics. And so we've looked at in the first week about how our, and we'll we'll come back to this theme quite a bit this week as well to sum up kind of put bookends on this thing, about how our our modern politics is not all that there is. This earth is not all that there is. There is a heavenly kingdom that is over and above and sovereign above all that we can perceive and see here on this earth. And so we want to have that in mind. And, And whatever we do in this world, to have that mindset, and we'll talk about that here in a few minutes. In the last two weeks, we kind of looked practically how do we engage as Christians in, in culture? How do we engage politically? Can we, should we? And the answer is yes. We'll hit that again this morning to kind of put you know, a final bow on this series. Uh, but we have to do it in a certain way. We still want to be Christ-like in what we do and how we communicate and the positions even, I think, that we hold. And so that's where we've been. And so today... We're going to ask a question and try to answer it, and I hope I don't go everywhere like a dog chasing a squirrel. I had to kind of rewrite this thing three times this week because I was like, I don't really like the way that's going, or that doesn't make any sense, or how do I connect these two ideas? And so I hope to be able to communicate sort of in a straight line where we're going, and you can stay with me, hopefully. If not, we're recording it, so you can watch it later and see if the second time through makes any more sense than the first time through. But we're going to sort of go Shakespeare this morning a little bit. We're not going to ask the question, to be or not to be. That's not the question. It's similar, but the question that we're going to be asking is, to separate or not to separate? Because when you look at this idea of church and state, typically you think of the phrase, separation of church and state. So I want to kind of unpack this very quickly. Historically, what does that even mean? Because you hear that term a lot, but it's not usually uh, explained. People have their own idea of what that means or where it came from, and they could be right or they could be way off base. So historically, this term, the separation of church and state, is not in any of our founding documents as a country. Those t- that term is not anywhere in the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence. The term actually comes from a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote in 1802 to a group of Baptist ministers who wrote to him. And they wrote to him because they were afraid that their religious liberties were going to be infringed upon. So in his response letter to them, he tells them, oh, no, 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 don't worry. He says there is a wall of separation between church and state. That's where that phrase comes from. It's from a letter, okay? So 
That idea, that phrase, though, does come from one of our founding documents, the Constitution. It's actually in the First Amendment of the Constitution, right? So the actual separation is this, okay? It says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So this separation of church and state is protecting the church from the state. So that's the idea, that Congress... The, the federal government, no government, can impose a religion upon any of its citizens. And it can't impose how they exercise their religion or how they don't. So that's, and that's one of the things that they recognized in writing these founding documents is, you know, one of the things that we left was an overpowering monarch an overreaching government who had a, they had a national church, the Anglican church, the church of England. We don't want a church of America. We don't want whoever's in charge to decide the religious policy, especially if we're changing that person every four or eight years. That's going to be really confusing. Oh, I worship this God now after the next election. Oh, we worship this God now. That's not going to work. And so they separated these two things for that purpose. Government does not control religious expression. That's all that means. However, what it has come to mean in our modern culture is something quite a bit different than that. What people really want when they talk about this separation of church and state is more than that. And that's what we're going to look at today. So what I want to start out with is some of the broad thoughts, one side and the other side of this separation. How this separation has gone too far in each direction the church side and the state side, and see what those problems are, and then, with the rest of our time, how we can solve that problem, how we can bridge that gap. How should we separate or should we not separate? I'm going to go ahead and tell you, n- no, not in the way that our modern culture does, okay? So here's, here's the first part. Let's look at the separation on, in terms of the state or in just strictly religion, religion apart from faith, how that can go down a terrible road. And I'll just tell you, you watch on the news every day, okay? You see it all the time. And so this is an easy one, okay? But here's the main idea for this one. Human politics focuses on the physical and the here and now. Apart from religion, the state, apart from church, apart from faith, that's all it does. So that's not bad, but it certainly is limited. And that fact alone is what really brings a lot of division in our nation, in our modern culture. Because politics and policies are now based on changing candidates, changing legislators, changing opinions, rather than on an unchanging set of religious or moral values. So that's the problem, that, that's the issue with modern human politics, is it changes all the time based on who's running for office or who's in office, rather than our values actually being on this bedrock of faith. When we separate church from state, this is what happens. And the real danger of this is that, and you probably know what, I'm, what I mean when I say this, the danger here is that religion, or that politics becomes religion. When we separate church and state to this degree and focus strictly on the state part, on the politics part, that becomes religious. It's mantras that we kind of chant. It's belief systems that we hold deeply, but again, they're on shaky ground. There's no foundation under which they can stand strong. And so here's, I'm going to look at, and this may seem off in left field, but I'm going to try to connect the dots before we're done, okay? 
The, the main point of modern human politics is it focuses on this main word, justice. How many times in the last eight months have you heard about justice? I'm seeking justice. I want justice. Now, is justice bad? No. Is justice wrong? No. But again, let's go back to the point we just made. When we pull faith away from politics, okay, what happens is this word justice, like everything else, has so many different meanings to so many different people and has so many different solutions to get there with so many different people. So in researching this idea this week, I came across at least four main types of justice. So we, different people mean dif- different ones of these. When they talk about, I want justice, and so, but I don't mean the kind of justice you're talking about. I don't care about that. I want mine. I want the thing that's important to me. And that's why we have division. That's why we have this huge separation of different people, different parties, different ideas, different locations. It's because we're saying the same word, but we mean different things. So let's talk about that for just a second, Okay. So there's uh, retributive justice, which is proper punishment under law. Is that a, that's not a bad thing, right? If someone commits a crime, what is, what's the punishment? Okay, great. That's not always easy to do, is it? I mean, we, it, we seem like, oh, it's easy. Yeah, just whatever it says, do that. But there are so many caveats and so many situations where it seems like that's just. But then this person would say, well, now I've got a reason why that's not just. So even that one definition has so many splinters in it, it's just hard to wrap our minds around and focus on. But retributive justice, that's probably the main one that we focus on. But then there's also procedural justice, which is fair, impartial rules, laws, and decisions. So this one almost should be before the other one. Before they're punished, we should make sure that the laws and the rules are fair and equal and impartial. But typically... Uh, after the law's been broken, it's too late for that one, right? Because it's already done. So if I change the law, do I change the sentence of breaking that law? Is that just? Maybe, maybe not. So again, even just with these two definitions that are similar, similar, we can see how divided this can become, how political this word can become. Then there's restorative justice, which not only focuses on helping those that are hurt, by an offender, but it focuses on helping the actual offender themselves. So instead, so an example of this would be, instead of saying, hey, if you break this drug offense, instead of going to jail, you're going to go to rehab. Instead, that's restorative justice. I'm trying to restore this person. Or instead of you being locked away forever, you're going to have to pay, but it's going to be community service, that sort of thing. It's restorative in nature. Or that, you know, allowing even people who are locked away for a long time to still gain an education, to better themselves, even if they're never going to get out. That's restorative justice. And there's a lot of debate on if that's good or not good or how far is too far or what we should do about that. But three definitions and we're already way all over the place, okay? And then the last one is distributive justice, which is a fair allocation of resources. So you could call this one economic justice. I ha- that's one that's, that's kind of new to me, but I guess that, that's what this one is. It's distributive justice. And again, this one is very contentious as well. How do we distribute things evenly? Should we distribute things evenly? What is evenly? Should we tax the super wealthy? Should we raise the minimum wage? Should we expand government to provide more programs? There's, I mean, I just said three things that if you say that to the wrong person the wrong way, like duck because they're going to throw something at you. If you suggest one of these policies in a certain way, it's a nightmare. So again, justice sounds great, doesn't it? Oh, justice. 
but it's impossible. If you've not noticed how the news looks lately, it's impossible because everyone has their own definition of what justice is. And it might even fall somewhere in between some of these. And I like these two, but not those two. And This one's really important, but those three, I don't care about. Like, that's not how this works. If we want justice, we have to define the term, and we can't. When you separate church from state completely, this is what you get. Everyone wants the same thing, but it's not the same thing. And I haven't even gotten into really what modern justice has become. Any Princess Bride fans in the house? Okay. So when I, now when I hear the word justice on the news or I read it in an article or online or in a, a post, I think, do you keep using that word? I do not think it means what you think it means. That's, that's what I think when I hear justice anymore. Okay? Because I just described four typical historical views of justice. But people aren't even thinking of that in those terms anymore. Most of the time, I would say, at least some of the time. Half the time. Most of the time. Oh, it's most of the time. Okay. I had to do the math in my head. Most of the time. Because here has, here's what justice has become. And I'm, I'm trying to not get too political here, but I'm just trying to make this point. This one word divides nations, and we are proof of that. Okay, because we're separating two things that ought not be completely separated. Okay? So modern justice, here's, the, here's what people are really saying. I want revenge. Now, that's different. If you, if, you, if, you want, if you want that, say that. But don't code it under this, I want justice. Because what happens is our modern justice has become, well, I want to get them back plus some. Or I was wronged in this way, and I want to determine how I get justice. I don't care what the law says. I don't care what's on the books. I don't care what is correct or even or really fair, which is the definition of justice, right? I want what I want, how I want it, when I want it, as much as I want. There's no limit. And if I don't get what I want, it's not justice. If I don't get it to the degree that I want it or in the timing that I want it, then it's unjust. I, I've, I've been infringed upon in my pursuit of justice. It goes too far. It asks too much. It's never enough. So you can even see how easily our human politics that focuses simply on the physical and the here and now just isn't quite good enough. When we separate church from state, faith from politics, we get where we're in right now. We focus strictly on the physical and the here and now and forget there's something bigger than that. There's something more important than that. There's something more overarching than that. But here's the problem. Let's look at the other side of this issue, though, the other side of this divide. So culture is typically very happy with the separation. I don't want your religious views. I don't want you to tell me how to live or what to think or who to worship. I don't want, so yeah, baby, separate that thing. Culture has embraced that. Unfortunately, I believe that much of church culture has embraced that separation as well to an unhealthy degree, and it causes its own set of problems. And so here, here's the thing. Faith, if, if, the, if uh, politics focuses on the physical and the here and now, faith focuses on the spiritual and the hereafter, the eternal. And again, that's not bad either. I say that that's quite good. And scripture, we're going to read a ton of scripture for the rest of our time, okay, just to give you a heads up, you know, red alert. Uh, scripture seems to indicate that this idea is actually really good. 
almost to the point to where we shouldn't focus on the physical and the here and now, but we should focus strictly on the spiritual and the hereafter or the eternal. Let's go through a few of these. John 14, 1 through 3, Jesus is telling his disciples this, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my Father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And here's what he says. When everything is ready, I will come to get you so that you will always be with me where I am. So this is talking about looking up for his return, okay? It's spiritual. It's about the hereafter. Hebrews 9, 28, the writer says this. So also Christ was offered once, once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. And here's the key. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who eagerly are waiting for him. Again, it's spiritual and hereafter. That's the focus of a Christian, right? Titus 2.13, we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ will be revealed. It's about looking forward, looking up, anticipating what's yet to come. Not focusing upon the here and now and the physical, but the spiritual and the that is yet to come. One more or two more. 1 John 3, 2 and 3. Dear friends, we are already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like him, for we will really see him, so for we will see him as he really is. Here again, and all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure just as he is pure. Again, it's spiritual and then hereafter. One more, Revelation 22, 20. The next to last verse in the entire Bible is setting this up. He who is faithful, who is the faithful witness to all these things says, yes, I am coming soon. That's Jesus saying that. And then John says, amen, come Lord Jesus. So even the Bible ends on this spiritual hereafter mindset. Forget the physical, forget the here and now. Don't worry about that. Focus on the spiritual and the hereafter. Again, that's not bad for the church to view that. It's not bad or wrong for followers of Jesus to view that. But, but, many times the church has gone too far in accepting the separation that our culture embraces. So what happens is, historically, the church or people within the church pull back from society. We get in our own little huddle we, all we do is pray and sing hymns and watch the clouds for Jesus, and that's all we do. We don't have as much of an interest in the here and now as we'll see in a second we probably should. Now, not all churches do this or have done this. Not all Christians do this or have done this. But by and large, as a culture, the church has been very content to kind of fade into the background and watch the world burn, Okay. God's judging the world because you're not like us. We don't really, we, I mean, you're welcome to come in, but if you're going to dirty up our, our lives and our church and our faith, and you can just stay out there and stay dirty and stop messing. Like the church has typically, historically in this country, in the last couple hundred years even, embraced this idea too much. We've embraced the idea, that's just how it is. Not a lot we can do. How are we going to fight the machine? How are we going to fight the culture? How are we going to fight these giants of technology and industry? How are we going to make a dent in the culture? We can't, so don't even try. Let's just shrink back and pray really hard and watch the sky and just exist. Right? Don't impact, just exist. And that's not really the way it's supposed to be. That's not the design. Just because culture has dictated the separation doesn't mean we shouldn't push back on that as much as we can. And here's what I mean by that. 
A few more scriptures. We're going to rattle these off. John 17, 14 through 16, Jesus says this. He's actually praying right in the garden right before he's handed over to be crucified. Here's what he prays. He says, he says to God, I have given them, that's his followers, that includes us, your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Here's what he says. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. That's where this phrase you may have heard comes from, that Christians are in but not of the world. That's where that phrase comes from. So did you see that? We're in the world, but not of the world. So he's, not, he's saying, I, didn't, I don't pray, God, that you take them out of the world. Don't take them away from the world. They, they need to be here to change the world. That's the whole point. And then we even see the Old Testament. We see this as well, Micah 6, 8. Prophet Micah says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice. Oh, wow, didn't we just define that word? There's a different definition that we'll get into in a second. To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So from the beginning, God's saying, hey, this is not just about spiritual stuff and eternal hereafter stuff. Yes, that's good. That should be maybe your primary focus, but not your only focus. We should be interested in the physical and the here and now as well at the same time. One more, James 1.27, the half-brother of Jesus says this, religion, so here we're... Now, there's no separation here, right? Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. There's both here. I care for those in need physically here and now while maintaining a focus on my spiritual condition and the hereafter. This verse combines both of these. And it stands to reason if we believe in the gospel, which means good news, if I have good news, I should want to share that, right? If we have the greatest message ever in the history of the world, we shouldn't just keep it into our little exclusive club. Again, not saying that this church, or I'm not singling out any specific person or church here. I'm saying by and large, as, as a movement, the church has done a really poor job of this at, at different times. And I think even now there's this fear like, oh, you know, religious liberties, are they going to come down? Are we safe? Are we free? Are they really going to hold to the truths that are self-evident and all this kind of stuff? And there's some shaking in the boots here, but that doesn't mean that we retreat into the corner and hide and say, well, we're just going to watch the world burn, you know, and just love Jesus on our way up. That's, that's That's not the solution. So if that's not the solution, if the answer then is not to separate these, if that's not what we want, then what is the answer? How do we find this balance? between caring about the physical and the here and now and the spiritual and the hereafter. How do we do that? Well, I believe it comes down to this one word. We've talked about it before, but we're going to look at it for a few minutes this morning. And that's this word, shalom. Now, perhaps you're familiar with this word or you, you would have an idea of what the definition or the meaning or heart behind this word is. Typically, we think this word shalom means peace, right? Shalom means peace. You know, it's like hola means hello, And that is true, but there is a fuller, richer, deeper meaning than just, oh, it's peace. Because you could say, yes, shalom on the earth, peace to the earth, right? But it's it's more than that. And so I want to look at that for just a couple minutes. Really, I think a true biblical definition, and I didn't want to take the time. There's actually 
one other Hebrew word and two Greek words that really flesh this out. But since I'm not talking for an hour and a half, I cut that part out, okay? Just trust me on this. We've talked about it before. If you're interested in that, we did uh, a series on the Beatitudes. We're going to go through them this morning for a minute. Uh, and I do a whole sermon on that. So if you're interested, you can look it up. So that, here's the, so shalom is not just peace, but shalom at its core root heart meaning is living in such a way that promotes happiness, wholeness, and mutual human flourishing. Not just peace, but that I, I live, the way that I express shalom is that I live in such a way that I promote happiness, wholeness, and mutual human flourishing. Now that's, the mutual part is the key in this term. So shalom does not mean that I do what makes me happy, but that I live in such a way that I bring happiness to other people around me. Shalom is not that I just seek out what makes me whole or brings me wholeness or completeness, but shalom is that I live in such a way that I promote wholeness to other people around me. Shalom doesn't mean that I flourish on my own because that, let's go back to justice for a second. Justice means that sometimes my justice means others' injustice. That's the modern term, right? The way that we use it now is if I get justice, that might mean it's unjust to them, but that's okay because I got justice for me. But Shalom says it's not just about me flourishing, but it's that I live in such a way that others around me flourish. And when I say that others, that we have others be happy, whole, and others flourish, it's also not just people that are like me or people that look only like me, or believe only like me. The idea of shalom is that we all individually live in such a way to promote happiness, wholeness, and mutual human flourishing to as many people as we can. Whether they look like me, talk like me, worship like me, or they don't. It doesn't have anything to do with that at all. It's just a way of living and a way of thinking about how we live. And this, I believe, is how we can find that balance. Because if I'm living in that shalom, it is about physical things. It is about meeting needs. It is about the here and now. It is about helping my actual neighbor. But it also, there's a second level to that where it is about, there's a spiritual nature to shalom. There's a hereafter eternal nature in the unseen that is shalom. If I live in that way that promotes those things, we can see success on both levels. So that separation comes a little bit closer, even if our culture doesn't see the connection, even if our culture pushes away, us just living in this way of shalom helps to kind of bridge that gap, even if it's very indiscernible. Because if we all can do that, We get enough force to kind of push them back together a little bit, I think. So it's an individual thing. It's up to all of us. So it is individual, but it is as a community as well. There's this idea that it's all of us doing it, but then together it's like, you know, the power just grows exponentially. So I want to kind of, just for a few minutes here, as we kind of begin to wrap it up, is how would Jesus explain this in everyday terms and how we actually behave, how we treat our neighbor, how we act and react? So he did this teaching, as I mentioned, called the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. It's the opening part of the Sermon on the Mount. And he gives these quick one-line teachings about how we should think about the world or behave within the world. And he doesn't use the word shalom here. He actually uses another, another word um, 
in the Aramaic from the Hebrew that is the same idea. It's one of these four cluster words, okay? But they all go together. So he's using this word blessed, okay? If you know anything about the Beatitudes, you know got Jesus says, blessed are the blank. So we're going to go through them here in just a minute. That's that idea of shalom. I am living in this shalom when I live this way. I'm uh, promoting this way of shalom when I live this way and do these things. So I want a little bit of participation for a few minutes, okay? We're going to go through these these sayings one by one for just a couple minutes. And we're going to, one at a time. And we're going to see, is Jesus talking about the physical or are you talking about a spiritual aspect here? Or is it both? So we're going to have a little bit of fun for just a couple minutes with kind of the, wrapping this thing up, getting practical on what this actually means. Matthew 5, 3. So think about this. Does this statement, is it spiritual in nature or is it physical? Okay. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Is that physical or spiritual? Yeah, that's a pretty, that's a spiritual one. So uh, the translation of this that I love, what's the poor in spirit? Really, the poor in spirit is someone who has an innate awareness of their need for God. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. I don't have all the answers. I don't have everything figured out. I'm not okay on my own. I need someone bigger and better and stronger and mightier than me leading me through life. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. I, need, I have an awareness of my need for God. Yeah, this is actually a, a spiritual um, thing. So then the second one, Matthew 5, 4, Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Is that physical or spiritual? Yeah, I would, I would think both too. Because we grieve here and now, right? We need comfort now, physically. I need that. I, I, there's something that I need that I'm lacking, that I've lost. I need comfort. We can find that here and now. However, the ultimate way to find comfort is in having this awareness of the hereafter, an awareness of the spiritual. So I can find some comfort, anyone apart, anyone apart from faith or in any faith, they can find some sort of temporary comfort from friends or family or whatever. But ultimately, true, lasting, ongoing comfort has to have that spiritual aspect in mind. So I, I would say, yeah, it's, bo- it's both. Matthew 5, verse 5, the next one. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Physical or spiritual? Ooh, we have a division. We have a division. It could be both. I see that as more physical. So it says, I mean, inherit the earth. So here's the thing about meekness. People, and this is a, you know, kind of a fun phrase. Meekness is not weakness. It's strength under control. So we think, oh, if you're meek, oh, that, that's the backing up in the corner watching the world burn. That's, that's weak. But that's not meekness. Meekness says I can try to make change in the culture here and now, and it says you'll inherit the earth. So I attribute this almost to how we approach things matters. Right? If you're coming into the room, yeah, I know everything, and I, it's like I'm shutting you off right away. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't need any of that attitude. I don't need any of that pride. Nope, I'm not going to take any advice from that kind of person. Someone who is meek, who comes in, <clears throat> and they might be, like we talked about with Jesus last week, might be the smartest person in the room, but they're going to let you figure that out. That's the kind of person I need in my life. That's the kind of person I'm going to go to for advice or help or counsel. So you, it, it matters. Your approach matters. Your attitude matters. It makes a difference on the impact you can actually have 
on this earth here and now. But there might be a bit of a spiritual aspect of that too. Verse 6, Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Physical or spiritual? What if I said both? I would say this. This word righteousness, I think, gets to a more accurate definition of justice than our modern culture allows. Righteousness means a right judgment, right? Right? And so there it is. So here's, here's how I would see this as physical. If I'm seeking righteousness, which is accurate justice, I'm going to find it more often than if I'm seeking modern justice. Because again, modern justice is like this monster with an imp, a, a stomach that's never filled. I can eat all the trolls in the land and I'm still hungry. That's what modern justice is. I'm never really satisfied. Yeah, I got a judgment, but no, nah, I don't feel like that was just. Or that happened, that wasn't just. And we're always seeking it and never satisfied. But if we're seeking righteousness, I think we can find an accurate view of justice here and now. And then spiritually, it all, it all comes down to a mindset. If I'm seeking the right things from the right source, I'll be satisfied more often. If I'm seeking God for what I need, righteousness, seeking after him, then I'll find satisfaction that I so desperately long for. So there is a bit of both to that. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, physical or spiritual. Hmm, I have physical. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. And again, I'm not trying to, I had like time to play in this out, okay? So you're on the spot, I understand. And you could be right, okay? I'm gonna be meek here. I could be wrong on some of these, okay? Uh, and this is, this is nothing that I, I just kind of thought about these this week in this way and wrote it down and thought it'd be kind of interesting. Here's why I don't think this is spiritual. Because the mercy that we receive from God is not based on our own mercifulness, is it? It's based on God's mercy and his mercy alone. So me being merciful, or here, let me say it this way. It could be, but I don't think it is always this clean cut. Me not being merciful doesn't mean that God won't show me mercy necessarily. Now, it's a good idea for me to show mercy, but I think this tends to be more physical. Again, it's my attitude toward people. If I'm not forgiving, should I expect forgiveness? No. If I'm not kind, should I expect kindness? If I'm not friendly, should I expect to have friends? Probably not. And so I think it is more of a physical thing. And for that reason, that God's mercy is not conditional, it is a bit, but I'm not going to get into that anyway. It could be spiritual, but I would say it's, it's predominantly, if not completely, physical. Okay, Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Physical or spiritual? Yes, that's spiritual. That's all I got for that one. It's spiritual. See God. Now, you, can, you could say, well, it's physical because you'll see God and how the world works and you'll see him. And it could be, but I think that's more of an eternal thing. If, and that's even what James talks about, to keep ourselves undefiled from the world as we work our own salvation out with fear and trembling, as Paul says. Then we'll see the result of that. We will see God in his, in his glory, okay? Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Physical or spiritual? Got another divide here. I think it's both in a way, right? So we want to make, we, we can't make peace, well, we can make peace with God, 
But I think the way he's looking at it here is relational, peacemakers, right? Blessed are the peacemakers. So that's the physical part. This is the, what's cool to me, the way I, I see this, is that the physical act gets the spiritual benefit. So the peacemakers are sons of God. Now that is, that is maybe you could say, well, they're a Christian, they're a true Christian because they make peace. You could say that. But I, I do see this, the physical act gets the spiritual title, reputation, or benefit. The last three verses are all spiritual, and so just to get us through here to, for the end of time, because we are going to take communion together, so I want to save a couple minutes for that. I want to just breeze through these. Matthew 5, 10, and then 11 and 12 are spiritual. So verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, that might be a physical thing that we do for a spiritual benefit. Verse 11 and 12, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He says you're blessed, okay? (laughs) Doesn't seem like it, but Jesus says we are. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who who were before you. So here, this is why shalom matters. This is why seeing this properly matters because it provides that balance between the physical and the here and now, which we should be concerned about and we should fight for, and it combines the spiritual and the hereafter that we want to work on to attain. So this idea of shalom incorporates all of that. So as far as this to separate or not to separate, I would say as much as we're able to know. Culture may not welcome in faith, but it doesn't mean that we have to give up. It doesn't mean that we have to think, well, God doesn't care, you know, so we don't have to care. He, he does care. So let me just, two thoughts before we get into communion and close is this. On Tuesday, I want you to vote, okay? I want you to vote your conscience. I want you to vote your beliefs, but I want you to understand that it's limited. Do it, but it's limited because... No politician is going to figure all this out, okay? If we haven't learned that by now, we need to learn that. No policy is going to solve all of our country's problems. So vote, yes, and do it with all your heart, but we want to pursue shalom as much as we want to vote for a politician or a policy or an amendment or a change or whatever. That, that's what's most important, and that does include that as well. So yes, vote, but understand it's limited, but this idea of shalom has reaching impact. I want you to engage in, in culture, right, with social issues. Don't hide from them. Don't be scared of them. Don't be frightened by, well, you know, I'm in the minority of faith now. Maybe, but we still have to do something. We still have to engage. Don't pull back. Don't disengage. Don't give up. And even that's limited to a degree, because your engagement might be ignored by most people. It might be unwelcomed by some people. It might be resisted and countered by people, but that's okay. It doesn't mean we pull back. It means we continue to push forward. Don't disengage, but instead engage and all the while strive for shalom. Ultimately, strive for this way of living that promotes happiness to everyone, wholeness to everyone, and mutual human flourishing both physically in the here and now and in the spiritual and in the hereafter. That is how we can bridge the gap. And I think that's how we get closer to the kind of world that we want to see is living ourselves, each of us, in this shalom.